I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome once again to Signals to Danger, the podcast which tells the stories of the darkest days of our nation's railways. My name is Dan Fox, the producer of Signals to Danger, and I also work full-time for a UK train operating company. My apologies for the uh, slight delay with this episode. I actually had an interview for a secondment earlier in the month, so focus had to slide to that, uh, and I found out that I got it, so I've had to wrap up a lot of stuff for my day job. So I'm sure you can understand that, uh, well, time needed to revolve around that for a little bit. But I'm back now, never fear. The show will go on, and the rhythm that we've enjoyed of late is not gone. I also want to take a moment to quickly thank those of you who support the podcast on Patreon or by purchasing merchandise. Then one thing I would like to say is that from this episode onwards, those of you who are Patreon supporters will be able to listen to episodes ad-free via Patreon, just as a way of saying thank you. This week, I want to welcome you to the final part of our multi-part episode into the 1999 Ladbrook Grove Collision, where we'll be closing out the discussion of the investigation, and more importantly, looking at the legacy of the accident. If you haven't yet listened to episodes 1 and 2, then pause here. It's uh, worth going away and coming back when you're caught up. With the intro dealt with, let's move into this week's episode and wrap up our journey through Ladbrook Grove. We'll begin this episode as we did last time, 
with a very brief recap of both the events that took place at Labrook Grove on the 5th of October 1999, and also what we found out last episode about the findings of the investigation so far. With respect to the accident itself, we will be a bit lazy and reuse that brief recap that we used last episode as it was a well, an effect and succinct way of revisiting it. On the 5th of October 1999, at 9 minutes past 8 in the morning, a Thames Trains 3-car turbo, travelling from Paddington to Bedwin in Wiltshire, collided with the first Great Western high-speed train travelling from Cheltenham Spa to Paddington. This collision took place at Ladbrook Grove Junction, two miles outside Paddington Station, and as a result of the collision and the fires that followed, 31 people died. Um, 227 were taken to hospital. 296 people in total were treated for minor injuries on site as well. Last week, when we spoke about the accident, in the beginning of the investigation, we talked about some of the aspects that were uncovered. First and foremost, and probably one of the most important ones, we discussed the key question about why the driver of the Thames Turbo, Michael Hodder, drove his train past a now infamous signal, SN109, when it was at red, and then why he failed to bring his train to a stop after he did so, before colliding with the inbound high-speed train. We looked at issues with the layout of the signalling in the track work, the fact that six bi-directional tracks meant that drivers could be given a multitude of options, and there was no real routine to which one they'd get each time, and that it was a complex layout at the best of times. Adding to this that the automatic route setting software that would send these drivers on zigzagging paths from one line to the next to another, and we could see how this would be an issue. The signal itself, SN109, was a challenging one for drivers to see. The spacing required between the signals meant that it ended up being located behind a bridge at a challenging height, it was sometimes washed out by the sun, and that the electrification work which had taken place after it was installed made it even more difficult to see. Because of this, the signal was changed into an odd design with the red aspect set off to the side in a reverse L shape. Ultimately though, we could see no evidence that Hodder had intentionally ignored the signal, and so we know he must have believed that he had a proceed aspect, while clearly he didn't. Because of the signal issues, he only had 8 seconds to view the signal as he passed it. And we also dived a little deeper into the reasons that this accidental, well, this accidental emission was probably the case. Last week we also looked at signals on duty at the time, and our key takeaway there was that they had waited for a number of seconds before they reacted, expecting Hodder to stop the train himself and call up the box to report the spad, purely because that's what had happened previously. On top of this, we looked at some well, let's call them narrative discrepancies in the story of the signalers. One of the key messages, and in fact the thing I will likely hang my hat on when I'm asked to highlight the most critical aspect of this accident, well, it's the lack, lack is the only word I can come up with, of motivation to prevent it. By this, I am of course referring to Railtrack's management of signal sighting and spad issues in the Paddington area, their intent to push through an electrification scheme without changes when engineers warned them about sighting issues, their failure to revisit plans when concerns were raised, but most importantly, their wholly inadequate response to the previous nine spads that had taken place at SM109 in the years running up to the Ladbrook Grove accident. Despite the fact that their processes required it, 
a signal sighting assessment was never undertaken, even though their own internal audit process picked up the fact that it was required and hadn't been done twice. That is a very succinct look through at what we covered last time and in a lot uh, less detail than we did last, last episode. But for now, it's time to put away what we've heard already, look at a few more factors, some recommendations, and finally, the wholesale changes that Labbrook Grove had on the industry. So, lots still to cover. It's probably time for us to crack on. There have been lots of abbreviations in this series so far, and, well, more left to follow. But the absence of one particular acronym had a real and tangible impact on the outcome of Michael Hodder's SPAD. ATP. ATP stands for Automatic Train Protection, and we can look at how crucial this could have been when we look at how it's highlighted in the first line of the section which covers it within the Cullen Report, which reads... If the turbo had been fitted with automatic train protection, and if that had been operational, then it is highly probable that the crash would not have occurred. We haven't talked about ATP in any detail before now, but well, there's no time like the present to dive into it. In the late 1980s, British Rail approved plans for the development of an ATP system, an automated system which would control trains following, well, a spate of SPAD-related accidents. The design that was developed was a beacon-based system with information transmitted to the train at fixed intervals by stationary beacons at key points on the line. This information is interpreted by an onboard computer which calculates braking curves based on the line speed or the approach to signals. The curves were set at three levels. The indication curve, which is the ideal, the warning curve, which is three miles an hour over the ideal braking speed, and crucial to this system, the intervention curve, six miles an hour over the indication curve. It's a great system in principle. Theoretically, it stops a SPAD before trains can even reach the signal, because it knows that it's not slowing down quickly enough to stop successfully. And that speed-based intervention is a, well, a real great step forward. And while it was a relatively new development, it was already on the ground in two distinct places. British Rail had decided to run two trial installations of ATP with an objective of having both operational by 1991. These trials were initiated in the Great Western Zone and on the Chiltern Line during 1991. By 94, just prior to privatisation, these installations were almost complete. However, while at the onset of ATP's development, there was a, an expressed recommendation to expand its coverage across Britain's whole rail network within half a decade. Railtrack, who took over the management of the infrastructure in '94, consequently only committed to completing the two pilot schemes, as well as adaption for new high-speed lines, and decided to, well, search for a cheaper alternative. 
The total cost of ATP was at one stage estimated to be £750 million. At the time, that's about £1.13 billion in 2020. In 94, BR and Railtrack estimated that a comprehensive deployment scheme would come at a cost of £14 million per life saved. Compared to £4 million per life saved, which they, and uh, brace yourself for this line, considered to be good value for money. Cost. It always comes down to cost. In fact, cost analysis comes up again when we look at whether or not Thames trains had elected to fit the ATP equipment to their trains. In 96, they'd started looking into the question of whether or not they would look to fit ATP equipment to the fleet. It doesn't come as standard, it's a, a new system that would have to be retrofitted to the existing trains. They worked out a cost of what they thought would be £3.5 million to do that, plus a contribution to Railtrack to install line-side equipment where it didn't already exist. Because initially this was an internal exercise, just being counted in the business, crunching the numbers, and coming to the conclusion that the costs outweighed the benefits. Following the 1997 South Hall collision, however, they at least revisited the issue, with leadership deciding that Thames trains should perhaps be more rigorous and get some independent validation of the work we had done. So a full, quantified risk assessment was undertaken at that stage. With that in mind, they commissioned an external consultancy, WS Atkins, to undertake a study into the cost versus the benefit. Now, for those of you who haven't encountered a cost-benefit analysis before, they're undertaken to establish the actual cost of the project over a finite period and to compare those costs against the estimate of the value of the benefits accruing from the same period. Quite a wordy explanation, but essentially it looks to balance out on paper whether the expenditure is worth it to the business. So, what was the outcome of this analysis, which was delivered in September of 98? It was that the fitting of ATP was not justified financially, as the costs outweighed the benefits. To undertake this study, Atkins looked at the cost of installing, operating and maintaining ATP on all 65 of Thames trains turbos, and of installing and operating and maintaining the line-side equipment. The easy part really is looking at the expenditure, but now they needed to look at the return that the system would deliver. They did this by assessing the likelihood and consequences of ATP preventable spads, first without ATP being fitted, and secondly with it being fitted, considering how frequent they were, what the likelihood of reaching conflict points were if signals were passed at danger, what types of stock were involved, and grimly as well as likely casualties, and the loss control costs, so that is the damage to rolling stock, disruption to operations, passengers. Atkins estimated that there was on average 7.9 ATP preventable spads per year on the routes that they were looking at. They predicted the number of equivalent fatalities and the loss control costs on an annual basis, and compared them with the assumption that ATP would prevent the spads occurring on all but 0.1% of the occasions. The benefits of fitting ATP was the difference between the two figures. And all of that meant that they estimated the benefit to be 2.96 million, which is 2.49 million for the equivalent lives saved, plus 4, well, 465,124 for revenue losses and uninsured equipment loss avoided. ATP installation costs 
were calculated at 8.2 million. So therefore the costs exceeded the benefits by 5.26 million. And it's it's a lot of money. And <clears throat> I can't say that I necessarily agree with the principle. I'm very much of the, if it saves lives, build it. But businesses are businesses and cost benefit analyses have to be made to see if anything's worth the, the expenditure to the business. Kind of feels challenging to read that, knowing that we're talking about an accident that claimed 31 lives, though. The difference can be expressed as a cost per fatality avoided. So the Atkins assessment brought this in at seven and three quarter million pounds per life saved. And Atkins concluded that from this analysis, it's not possible to make a case in cost benefit terms for installing ATP on the routes that Thames Trains operates over. Like I said before, it always comes down to cost. And understandably, Thames Trains stuck by the decision not to implement the installation. And now that I've waxed lyrical a little bit and had the, the corporate bit said and done, I need to say, in, in full disclosure, there was another factor in the offing. The relatively high cost of ATP had already been highlighted, and the industry was already starting to move in another direction. Even before the trials of ATP had been fully implemented, a programme known as SPADRAM was already underway. SPAD reduction and mitigation. In fact, the Secretary of State had even said in a statement back in '95 that ATP was no longer going to be the national solution, and that SPADRAM was the way forward. With another initiative out on the way, it's far easier to understand the reluctance of Thames Trains to make the investment. You know that something else is coming, that probably will be the national solution and therefore will probably be mandated. So I can start to get behind the logic. In fact, we can probably give them a nod, because even though they knew something else was on the way, they still asked for that independent assessment from Atkins. If we can look past the frustration that had Thames Trains done the installation prior to the end of 98, well, the accident could have been avoided. And did SPADRAM happen? Was the system mandated? Yeah, and it, we've talked about it many times before. Because what SPADRAM became, a little way down the line, was the Train Protection and Warning System, TPWS. Every report brings with it recommendations, and this one was no different in that respect. Although different, I suppose, in the fact that there were 89 of them. So understandably, I'm not about to reel through all of them. Instead, I'm going to go through the areas that they were grouped into, and I'm going to pull out some highlights for you, starting with the support of the bereaved and the injured. The first few of these recommendations revolve around the fact that records around the missing, the casualties, the survivors should be computerised, and that these records should be made available to all police forces. 
There was also a recommendation around the provision of common telephone numbers and the arrangement of facilities for the bereaved and for the injured. Moving on to the second bank of recommendations, consisting of only one, well this focused on track and signalling changes, in particular relevance considering what we learnt about Paddington's approach last time we met. This one stated that where a material change to track or signalling or both is proposed, that there should be an express consideration of all relevant safety issues by an analysis of the material factors, if necessary, using a risk assessment. This should be done at the design concept stage and repeated at defined stages up to and including implementation. Something that was well, sorely missed on the approach to one of the nation's biggest stations in the years coming up to 98. Followed almost immediately, the recommendations around track and signalling changes came, well, three specifically related to signalling around Paddington. Firstly, that rail track should ensure that the risk assessments and any consequent actions related to the signals required under the group standards were carried out as soon as possible. Those ones that weren't done, and the audit said they weren't done, but they weren't actually done then still, that's those. Secondly, the recommendation that rail track should conduct a safety examination of the layout um, from Paddington over the next two miles, so to satisfy the HMRI, if necessary, by a risk assessment, that it is safe for operation at the current speeds and to current traffic arrangements. And finally, that a safety examination of the layout should be made so that HMRI was satisfied that it is safe. And this was actually specified that they should be conducted by someone independent of rail track itself. Driver management and training came next. Eight recommendations here. First, stating that signals and drivers should attend away days to develop a mutual understanding of each other's roles. The teaching of defensive driving, increased face-to-face briefs, a review of the systems assessing competence, well, they all made appearances as well, along with a drive towards assurance that training schemes are fit for purpose and that research into human factors and their relations to train drivers made up the rest of the recommendations. 22 through 32 all relate to the area of signal sighting, first and foremost being that the standard on signal sighting should require explicit consideration needs to be given to the readability of a signal. should be made clear that the factor signal complies with a minimum requirement. That's not in and of itself to be taken as meaning that it is adequate. Standards should also deal with the extra time needed to view some signals, consideration of human factors, minimum standards on how temporary blocking of signalling by infrastructure items should be considered and how the sight lines from specific driving cabs with their specific views of the signals how that should be built into the standards as well. Railtrack was also told that they should examine the availability of staff to undertake signal sighting assessments, and that they should define management's responsibility to decide whether or not signal sighting committees' recommendations should be implemented, and if not, crucially, what alternative measures should be taken. The recommendation basically says that it's not good enough just to not do it. If you... If you have the recommendations, you need to understand, we need to be able to explain why you didn't do what was recommended and what you did instead. 33 through 35 talk to SPAD investigations, stating that the group standard should be reviewed to make sure that there's no presumption of driver error 
and actually to consider removing the reason of driver disregard as one of the options on the form. It was also suggested that those responsible for investigations should receive human factors training and root cause analysis training, as well as a measure put in place for the competency of that staff. The next three related to signaler instructions and focus on making sure that the need for immediate action on the event of a SPAD was to be understood fully by all staff, and that options for this action were something that was at the forefront of the mind of the signaler. 39-46 support this, covering signaler training and working conditions, introducing a recommendation for post-SPAD briefings, the need for SPADs to include a signal report detailing the actions that they undertook, then the use of simulators for effective training, as well as streamlining of tasks and the need to practice. The last section was supported by the six following it, which related to the equipment within the signalling centres themselves. These were things like a unique alarm for SPADs, a national system of direct radio communications, GSMR, it is coming eventually guys, don't worry, and that the staff are made fully aware of the need to preserve data following a SPAD. The remainder of the recommendations relate to both crashworthiness, fire mitigations and passenger evacuation. And with that many recommendations, I'm not going to labour those particular points because we've discussed all of them in previous episodes. And actually, we do need to involve, well, we do need to account for the energy levels involved in accidents as substantial as these, especially where diesel trains are involved and fire is a risk. That does bring us to the end of our recommendations and actually to the conclusion of the inquiry report. 31 lives and the reason for their end laid out in nearly 300 pages of excruciating detail. But that's not where our story ends today because the Cullen report was produced in two parts. Now it's time for us to move on and to discuss the legacy. When Lord Cullen was tasked with chairing the inquiry into the Labrook Grove accident, his terms of reference came in two parts. The first was to inquire into, and to draw lessons from, the accident near Paddington Station, taking account of the findings of HSE's investigations into the immediate causes. This is the remit that we've just spent the last two or so hours discussing, although, as I did say, in nowhere near as much detail as the inquiry did. There was a second and arguably more important half of the remit that read as follows. To consider general experience derived from relevant accidents on the railway since the hidden inquiry, with a view to drawing conclusions about factors which affect safety management, the appropriateness of the current regulatory regime, and to make recommendations for improving safety on the future railway. The Hidden Report was the output of the inquiry which was produced by Anthony Hidden QC following the Clapham Junction accident of 1988, and it was important to understand whether or not lessons which needed to be learned had been learned, 
and also more importantly whether the regulatory system surrounding the nation's railways, well, was it the form that would actually prevent other inquiries from being needed after further accidents? Before we dive into the outcomes proper, let's briefly remind ourselves of the setup of the industry at the time. At the early part of the decade, British Rail was the body responsible for the trains, the tracks and, well, the railway. But the 1993 Railways Act saw British Railways restructured to create an organisation where the constituent parts could migrate into fully independent entities to be transferred progressively into public ownership as the railways came out of, into private ownership as the railways came out of public ownership. Privatisation was initially brought about by the sale of a number of businesses, such as freight operating companies, Fox, Roscoe's, rolling stock leasing companies, and the franchising of newly created passenger train operating companies, or TOCs. Privatisation through sale of the government shares in Railtrack Group PLC did not take place until the 20th of May 1996, but by 97, the whole of the functions of British Railways had been split up into about 100 businesses and sold. Alongside this, the regulatory framework was established, based on the separation of three functions, economic regulation, the franchising of passenger services, and safety regulation to be discharged by the Office of Rail, the Office of the Rail Regulator, the Office of Passenger Rail Franchising, and the HSE, respectively. There are a lot of organisations that were involved at the time as well, the SRA, or the Strategic Rail Authority, ATOC, which is now RDG, which is the Association of Train Operating Companies, but now Rail Delivery Group, to name just a couple. But I don't want to get bogged down in all that, though we are going to pay attention to the acronym S&SD for Safety and Standards Directorate. As part of its network licence, Railtrack established the Safety and Standards Directorate responsible for overseeing the organisation's safety considerations, developing standards and monitoring monitoring industry-wide safety performance, plus well, a number of other tasks, one of which was the management of the railway group standards, and from its inception, SNSD undertook the reducing of 9,000 or so standards, which had been inherited from British Railways, to a much smaller number, which were more goal-setting and a bit less detailed than their predecessors. In fact, by the year 2000, that number had been reduced to just over 500, with a number of them still under revision. But how was the legislation of safety managed at the time? The activities of the companies in the rail industry were, and indeed still are, subject to the general law which relates to health and safety, that is uh, sections 2-4 to of the 1974 Act, which imposed general duties on employers to their employees, and on employers and persons concerned with premises to persons other than their employees. That is the, the, the Health and Safety at Work Act, 1974. The 1993 Railway Act reinforced that, clarifying that the 1974 Act included securing the safe operation of transport systems and protecting the public from injury and risk on those systems. Safety regulation at the time, however, well, that came in the form of the HSC, the HSE, and HMRI. The HSC, or the Health and Safety Commission, as we said previously, was a statutory body consisting of a chairman and a number of members appointed by the Secretary of State, and HSE at the time was the operating arm of the committee. Under Section 11 of the 1974 Act, they had the duty to exercise whatever functions HSC directed them to on their behalf and to give effect to any decisions which the HSC had issued. 
the HMRI at the time, Her Majesty's Royal Inspectorate, now His Majesty's Royal Inspectorate, acquired that title on the 3rd of December 1990 when they were transferred from the Department of Transport to the HSE and became the HSE's operational division which had responsibility for health and safety on the railways. In any case, this was the post-privatisation landscape in a very simplified fashion. So what did Cullen make of it? In conclusion to a section of the inquiry entitled The Management and Culture of Safety, he offered this concluding comment. While there are encouraging signs of good practice, performance across the industry as a whole is at best patchy. The way forward is clear. The industry needs to take all necessary steps to set high safety standards through clear leadership, good two-way communications, a relentless pursuit of excellence of operations through the identification and adaption of best practice, learning processes, training, and the involvement of all employees, a new focus on the real concerns and interests of customers, and a new ethos of cooperation across the industry. Room for improvement would be one way of simplifying that. Very much room indeed. So what comes next? One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. There is a lot of detail in the second half of the Cullen Inquiry. Far too much to cover here. In fact, probably take another two-part to get through all of it in any reasonable level of detail. And It's just as long as part one. So to be fair, it's a difficult read at times. There's, there's a lot of information in there. So we're not going to do another two-parter on top of that, just for that section. I am going to focus in on three aspects of the recommendations. Three bodies that Cullen decided that the industry needed and what he wished for them to do. A safety regulator, a safety body, and an accident investigation body. And we'll start by talking about regulation. But just before we start that, I'm going to kick off and clarify a phrase that's shown up a couple of times in this episode, and that is safety case. The long story short is that a rail safety case is a document that provides an overview of your organisation's approach to safety, demonstrates how you management systems work together to achieve your safety commitments. 
Each of the business that wishes to operate on or around the railway, Tox, Fox, otherwise, was required to produce a sufficient rail safety case. With the safety cases of train operators being assessed and approved by SNST at rail track prior to being assessed by HMRI, the infrastructure operator had actually become somewhat of a de facto regulator in the years coming up to 2000. And Cullen makes the point that it was inappropriate that a commercial organisation such as Railtrack should continue to fulfil a, a regulatory role against commercial organisations such as train operators. That makes perfect sense. Adding to this that HSE's placement as a sort of official regulator, that had been called into question. And it was suggested that, well, actually, because of their past weaknesses and failures, that the possibility existed that they should be superseded by a new safety regulator, specifically for the rail industry. Other issues were considered, whether or not the body responsible for regulation should be the same one that investigates accidents, or whether a separate body was required. Industry bodies, along with the bereaved and injured that were represented by the South Hall and Labbrook Grove Solicitors Group, and the Rail User Committees, well, they advocated for the creation of a new safety regulator for the railways to replace the HSE's position there. They stated that this would provide a clear delineation between the regulator and the regulated, along with a clear indication that the settling of railway group standards and their enforcement were regulatory functions. The railway needed a new start for safety regulation. With all of that in mind, as well as many other factors, it led Cullen to recommend that a new regulatory body was required, one that was independent of the other players in the industry, and one that was fit for purpose. But as we said, regulation wasn't the only thing that was required. The Cullen report also suggested the creation of a safety body. It was clear to him that the function of setting railway group standards should be assumed by a body independent of rail track and also that it was inappropriate that the safety regulator should perform this function, because if a regulator is to discharge its own distinctive role properly, it had to be distanced, and to be seen to be distanced, from the industry and its members. This pointed clearly to the conclusion that in principle, the function should be assumed by a new rail industry safety body, which was independent of both Railtrack and the regulator. Various contributors to the inquiry proposed differing models of what a safety body should be responsible for, but the general areas that were raised were all fairly similar, and they circled around a few factors. Firstly, the setting of the standards. The opinion of Cullen was that that body should have explicit duties to set and review standards for the railway, and that its performance would be subject to the supervision of HSE through auditing and other actions. They would continue to ensure that the standards met the current requirements, both of safety legislation and of good practice. This would give it a supervisory function and an obligation to prod other bodies into action when those standards had fallen behind their requirements. And the teeth behind the control of these standards would come from the fact that those standards would be legally binding to those who were obliged to follow them. The other areas which inquiry contributors indicated that the body could hold responsibility for was the control of the design of new railway vehicles as well as accreditation or licensing. As such, Cullen recommended that such a body should not only exist, but that it should be set up as a new legal entity, independent of any company in the rail industry and any part of that industry, such as you know the TOX. It should have the power and the duty to take binding decisions. To avoid a situation in which the development of group standards was dependent on consensus, because that could lead to 
well, a level that was no better than the lowest common denominator, Cullen recommended the appointment of an independent chairman and the provision for a number of independent members with suitable practical experience. To complete the triad of new organisations which the inquiry considered, we first need to look outside of the rail industry to the arrangements in both the aviation and maritime industries. By this point, both the AAIB and the MAIB were already in existence, being the Air Accidents Investigation Branch and the Marine Accidents Investigation Branch. Independent bodies responsible for investigating accidents in their respective area. It's not too difficult to guess at this point what the recommendation Cullen brought forwards might have been. Unsurprisingly, he recommended that the responsibility for the investigation of accidents should be entrusted to an independent body that was set up for the purpose. And again, probably less surprisingly, that that body should be similar in constitution to the AAIB and the MAIB, and even in the inquiry report, written prior to any of the actions or implementations, he was already referring to this body as the RAIB. So that's where we find ourselves. Three new bodies recommended to restructure the industry's safety structure. So what happened next? No spoilers for anyone who's listened to this podcast before, because we all know that at least one of those bodies definitely came into being. Especially considering every other episode of this podcast is called an RIB Roundup. But it is now time for us to move on to a key piece of legislation which changed the face of an industry. The Railways and Transport Safety Act 2003. It's not a very catchy title, but it is a key turning point in the industry, and it enshrined the recommendations of Part 2 of the Cullen Report. The Act covered a number of issues, including some non-railway ones, and some of them were quite surprising, such as the introduction of alcohol limits on the crews of waterborne vessels and aircraft, you know, in line with those already in place for railway staff. Surprised when I found that out, in 2003, the limits were set on how much alcohol you could have to work on a plane. But never mind, this is a rail podcast, not an aviation one. In any case, there were definitely some fairly rail-focused pages within the Act. In fact, the majority of the document did relate to rail. British Transport Police was given statutory authority over the railway, the ability to recruit their own PCSOs in line with the territorial forces, and its position was enshrined with the creation of a police authority. But actually it's part one and two of the Act, not the things further through the document, that we're going to focus most heavily on here. Part one introduces a body that we're all too familiar with, the RAIB. And in the very legalese way that these Acts are often and indeed have to be written in, it states that the Secretary of State shall appoint persons as inspectors of rail accidents, and one of these inspectors as the Chief Inspector of Rail Accidents. These inspectors may be referred to as the Rail Accident Investigation Branch, and that an Inspector of Rail Accidents shall carry out such of the functions of the Rail Accident Investigation Branch as may be assigned to him by the Chief Inspector of Rail Accidents. 
This is the, the formation, the establishment of the Independent Accident Investigation Body recommended by Cullen. The Act also enshrined the remit of the branch, stating that the RAIB shall investigate any serious rail accident, may investigate a non-serious accident or an incident, and shall investigate a non-serious rail accident or an incident if required to do so in accordance with the regulations. It also legally includes that a report must be made to the Secretary of State, the output of which is actually what is those RAIB reports I've spent so much, probably too much of my time buried in over the last few years. But the key line in here, and the one that means the branch focuses so well, is that in performing a function in relation to an accident or incident, the branch shall not consider or determine blame or liability by law. When we say that the RAIB doesn't apportion blame, it's legal. It has to not apportion blame. It is an independent investigator who their responsibility is to figure out the root cause and any causal factors. They're not there to say it is Joe Bloggs' fault. They're there to explain exactly what went wrong. The Act doesn't only create the branch in its remit, but it actually provides legal powers to allow investigators to carry out their role unhindered. It says that they can enter property, both on the railway and adjacent to it, or related to its operations, or a head office in the city centre. That's not off limits either. And they can also access railway vehicles to undertake their investigations. They can make records of virtually any kind. Photos, documents, digital downloads. It allows them to gain access to records that other organisations hold to require an individual to provide information or to provide samples to remove items from the scene as evidence. And it even makes it an offence not to comply or to lie in response to the REIB's requests. In short, this act created and empowered one of the most crucial changes in the way that accidents are investigated for decades, and in my opinion played a major part in making sure that the railway was a safer place for the future. But it wasn't the only body that was created by the Act. Part 2 of the Act introduces a second body that Cullen recommended, the ORR. Now we know it as the Office of Rail and Road, because in 2015 it folded in the road stuff, but at its inception, at this point, off the back of the Act of 2003, it was the Office of Rail Regulation. The legalese there used was uh, that there shall be a body corporate to be known as the Office of Rail Regulation and that the functions of the rail regulator are hereby transferred to it. In practice, the ORR currently lists its functions in relation to rail as providing health and safety guidance and conducting research to promote continuous improvement, publishing reports on the industry's health and safety performance, carrying out inspections to ensure that the train and freight operating companies and network rail manage both passenger and occupational health and safety risks appropriately, investigating breaches of health and safety regulations on the railways, and taking informal and formal enforcement actions, including improvement notices and prosecutions. And that's just the safety side of the business. There's also a whole raft of responsibilities that the regulator takes on from a more customer-focused point of view, such as holding network rail to account for a punctual and reliable services to the passenger and freight industries, making sure that talks provide reliable and timely information and take action when things go wrong, or enforcing compliance with regulations on accessible travel, just to name a few. 
But this body, this independent regulator, is yet another improvement. It takes away the mix of quasi-regulation that RailTrack had to... Well, we now know that as Network Rail, but that's a, a whole other story for a whole other time. That's two bodies, but I promised you three. Outside of the Railways Act, a third body was founded, the last part of that triad, the safety body. And for this, we received the RSSB, the Rail Safety and Standards Board. RSSB now helps industry improve safety performance through activities including managing a research and development program, developing and maintaining standards, providing insight and guidance on rail systems, safety and health. A third party body, which manages the safety culture of the whole industry and actually now has expanded into other areas such as helping the industry become more sustainable. There are two key areas that I'll focus on here when I talk about the RSSB. They do a lot of things, but key ones here are standards. As of December 2023, so now, the RSSB owns 2,390 standards documents. 198 of them are live, the others have been withdrawn or superseded. But these cover a wide range of aspects, from track system requirements, how switches and crossings must be designed, how radio systems need to work, and even how line-side signs must be designed and built. They cover a whole range of things. These standards are owned by the board, regularly updated in reaction to the changing needs of the industry and the development of technology. An independent body, not pulled one way or another by the commercial needs of those who are required to follow their standards. The other thing that the RSSB looks after is the rulebook, a collection of 105 modules which govern the exact way tasks must be carried out on the railway. Clear, concise and standardised exactly what we need from a safety board. Three different bodies were born out of the aftermath of Labrook Grove, and if only they'd been in existence before, if the changes made in 1993 had recognised the needs which Cullen and his team managed to find, well, who knows? brings us to the end of another three-part episode and I actually do feel like it's important after these really long ones to circle back around a little. Yep, it's been really important to find out what changes that Labrook Grove and indeed the accidents in the years preceding it had on the industry. New safety systems, a board responsible for them, a new regulator to hold people to account and an investigation branch who would hopefully need to investigate far less fatal accidents than the bodies that preceded it. And you know what? After five or six years of a major accident almost annually, the numbers started to peter out a little bit. The years around Labrook Grove is the time that I've sometimes referred to as the modern dark ages of our network. Between 1997 and 2002, we saw not only this accident, but Southall, Hatfield, Great Heck, Potter's Bar, a period which saw a line drawn underneath it with the Railways and Transport Safety Act of 2003. And yes, absolutely fine, I'll concede that 
2004, the year immediately afterwards, a high-speed train derailed with disastrous consequences at Ufton Nervet, and we did speak about that earlier this year. But if you were around for that episode, you know that that was, that was the fault of a man who chose to end his life by parking on a crossing. Not necessarily the industry's failings, not entirely in any case. When we look at the years following, big accidents fade out a little. It's 2007 before Grey Rig brings us another fatal crash for travelling passengers, and even then it's passenger, not passengers. And from then on, the accidents seen predominantly are incursions on level crossings, low-speed derailments, collisions with buffer stops. It's actually 2020 before another passenger on a train dies as a result of an accident. Carmont, along with two members of train crew, and an absolute tragedy, but from a major fatal accident virtually every year to these big gaps, the culture improved and the safety came with it. The changes that took place were a contributor to this improvement, to this legacy, and we're all safer for it. But with all of this in mind and how important it is to pick up all of that, which is why we had a three-parter and one part was looking at the legacy, it's important to circle back round and remind ourselves of where this story began. A couple of weeks back, we started to talk about Labrook Grove, the journey of two trains, one of them cut drastically short as it left Paddington and another that never quite made it to its destination. We talked about Michael Hodder, the newly qualified driver, just starting out his career in what hundreds consider a dream job. His whole future and his life in front of him and his family at home. And then there was Brian Cooper, a railwayman of 37 years who also had a family. Two men whose days had started exactly as they were meant to, along with many other people who'd boarded their trains and started what they thought was going to be a perfectly normal day. We heard about the terrifying sequence of events which had started so normally but that went to ruin with a mistake, an error. But in a situation where the systems designed to keep errors from becoming disasters had failed. Processes not followed. Audit actions neglected. Opportunities for intervention which came, went and vanished into rail tracks rearview mirror as disaster loomed on the horizon ahead. But despite all we've learned... With the hours that we've covered on this three-parter, the thousands of words that I've written and read back to you, the literal thousands of words that you've listened to me say on this subject, we always need to keep in mind that there is one thing that we need to remember. Well, in this case, it's 31 things. 31 names at the heart of what happened on the 5th of October 1999. People with lives, friends, family, with jobs, with hobbies with people who loved them, who never saw them again. After all the time we've spent discussing Labrook Grove, I want to sum up this time by making sure that we remember them. Their names are Charlotte Anderson, Elaine Kellogg, Derek Antonowitz, Martin King, Anthony Beaton, Antonio Lacavera, Ola Bradley, Rasak Ladipo, Roger Brown, Matthew McCauley, Jennifer Carmichael, Delroy Manning, John Northcott, Robert Cotton, John Raisin, Sam Delito, David Roberts, Sean Donahue, Alan Stewart, Neil Douse, 
Kawata Heed, Cyril Elliott, Wathinglam Taparian, Fiona Gray, Andrew Thompson, Juliet Groves, Brian Thompson, Sun Yun Ha, Simon Wood, Brian Cooper, and Michael Hodder. Thank you for joining us for yet another episode of Signals to Danger. Come and hang out with me on social media. Find us at, at Signals to Danger on Twitter or Signals to Danger on Facebook. Or drop me an email at daniel.fox at dfrailmedia.com. Don't forget, the merchandise we have on sale, the link is on our social posts. And a big thank you to everyone who supports us on Patreon and who are now able to enjoy these episodes ad-free. If you're interested in supporting the podcast, check out the link on the support page of our website, signalstodanger.com. With all that said, until the next episode, travel safe.